Hey, everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, we are doing our fourth installment of the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. Just keeps getting deeper with this guy. I really appreciate this book that I've been using to get a deep, go, you know, a little deeper dive into this guy's psyche mm-hmm. because if you haven't listened to the other episodes or if you haven't, just forget. Uh, the book that I'm reading is called Confession of a Serial Killer by Dr. Catherine Ramsland. It's the untold story of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. I've gotten some other sources, um, information from other sources, but this is the majority of it just because she did an interview with him for this book. And so, you know, you can go online and read anything about him. Sure. But what's, I think it's incredible when you can get an interview mm-hmm. absolutely, and get really, you know, a little deeper in there. So, you know, the last episode we left off on the trajectory of his murders. And so today I'm, I'm going to lean in a little bit into his psychology, some explanations. I know there was a question that you and I were entertaining in that last episode about how was it and why was it that he took such, you know, lengthy periods at times between his killings. So I'm going to answer that. Okay. And I'm also going to talk just a little bit more about, about his fantasies, about the, the evolution of this really dark side. Okay. Um, that sounds so, great. Yeah. So as noted in, in the first episode, Raider, you know, appeared at least to have a really, you know, seemingly unremarkable childhood, just meaning that there wasn't anything very significant or odd or bizarre um, that we would find in people like, you know, Ted Bundy or Richard Ramirez. But, but we also learned that early on from the time he was actually in his mother's womb, his body and mind were experiencing trauma. So his mother fell off a horse when she was pregnant and then she dropped him on his head around six months. So that isn't something that people really look at in these cases. I mean, they do, but more often we're looking at like, was he killing animals and was he right? So he did have head injuries and what we know, and we know this about Richard Ramirez as well. He had uh, Ramirez had a form of epilepsy that we don't know what kind of changes that will cause to the brain and how much that could have influenced his personality. So something we just keep in the foreground of what we're talking about yeah, here. I can't so imagine it wouldn't have affected him, at, right? <laughs> at six at six months? Yeah, I just can't imagine it. But And then mom falling off a horse while she's carrying Yeah, him. I mean, I mean science is funny, of, but I can't imagine yeah, that wouldn't have done for something. Sure. So he felt very inadequate with some subjects, and he had to repeat several classes to catch up. And probably, I would imagine there was probably some learning stuff in there, maybe if there was head injury. Um, But he also felt really socially awkward and awkward around girls. So he saw himself as very smart with good common sense and self-control. But he did start to begin showing signs of animal cruelty when he was a child. So his childhood was not as... And I think they tried to do this with Dahmer too. Like he grew up in a normal family. And when you really start to look in, you're like, "Eh, was it? No, it wasn't. (laughs) So no, he was, he actually was showing some of these signs from an early age and he would get into trouble in grade school. He would miss recess if he didn't drink his milk. That was a big deal. Like if you don't drink your milk, you cannot go out to recess. And so while children were playing outside, he would stay in and he would draw and he would draw they called it blackboard horror places and girl traps is how he she framed it in the book and so he he would draw these really dark 
pictures and he was obsessed with reading people like H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. And this is like an er from a young, you know, it's not like a high school kid, right? which is, I mean, I loved Scooby-Doo and shit, but I was not reading about (laughs) H.H. Holmes in elementary school (laughs) on recess. So then in his early teens, he remembers having um, low glucose levels. So low glucose and glycogen can cause recidivism into violent behavior. And so according to this article, the brain needs 80 milligrams of glucose a minute to function efficiently. And once it's down, there are symptoms of nervousness and irritability. So he denies ever feeling angry at these times, but he would say that he couldn't think straight and he felt very critical of things around him. So uh, putting all this all together, he'd never felt comfortable in his space, whether that be with people, whether that being fully in control of things, which makes sense why fantasies were such a great escape for him. At 17, he sustained a, a severe head injury as well. So this is now his second one before he's even reached adulthood. And we know that the brain continues to develop till about 26 years old. So this is from the book, um, directly from the book. It was a shock to my parent um, as I entered the house, bleeding and crying. They immediately took me and my friend to St. Francis Hospital. I liked the the attention. They called my friend's folk who met us there. My friend had a mild concussion, and they kept him overnight. They sewed me up, and I was released. Before leaving, I asked to see my friend to check on him, but also to get our story straight on what happened, and that uh, that another vehicle had run us off the road. I'm not sure if he remembered or even cared. I was sore the next day and rested in bed, missed a day or two of school, very self-aware of my face wound. I remember the first day back, my math teacher joked, asking if one of these farm girls had beat me up. Later on, I confessed to the insurance man I had been going too fast for the foggy night. Overall, I was terribly upset with crashing the family car, and it took me a long time to get my my nerve to drive again. This wreck was the start of the dark spin. So it was after this second injury does he start to really now notice a change in what he's thinking about and what he's spending most of his time on and so his fantasies became about controlling life or death mostly about controlling the life or death outcomes of a girl so he was right he was shy he was awkward he would live out his relationships with women through the fantasies in his head He would find a way to possess them and punish them. He could decide whether they would live or die. He made up his own stories. This became incredibly powerful for him, which is why much of his, much of his obsession and much of where he was satiated was in the buildup of his crimes and the imagination and the stalking less than the actual crime. And I'll talk about that. So, He always enjoyed, and this is really interesting too, because he was probably quite young when he watched this. He always enjoyed the Rocky and Bullwinkle show where the villain is always looking to tie up the redheaded Nell to the railroad railroad track. So Raider viewed this fantasy as a split in himself or what he called cubing. So the tying up was as arousing as the rescuing. He would use asphyxiation to turn himself on tying himself tighter in the midsection until he would feel a high. He felt guilty that he couldn't stop. A hero thing. A hero thing. And being in control. And we know, too, and I talked about this in other episodes, when he would go to kill the Atero daughter, that he 
killed he would suffocate her enough and then let her go he decided when they would finally go yeah that's that sadism yeah so the, he stated that the braver he became the more provocative his behavior would become he would tie up female family members peep on female neighbors purchasing purchasing his own telescope at 12 years old he would sneak out in the middle of the night removing screens from his neighbors homes identifying himself as a prowler so as Raider would age, he began to call this side of himself that he could not control the dark side. Mm-hmm. So when Paula, his wife, was in the hospital after the car accident, which I talked about in another episode, Raider had a lot of alone time. And he started finding what he would call hidey holes in their home where he would store all of his detective literature and bondage stories. And Paula didn't have a clue because Raider really compartmentalized his life it was very separate even the way he was intimate with her was just very mundane and kind of black and white we're going to have sex to procreate conservative so paula didn't ever really like that kink so raider had tried it once and then they never engaged in that form of sex ever again he was afraid of this life becoming discoverable so he went into the hospital for knee surgery and he realized if um, anything would have gone wrong, he would and he would die on the operating table. Eventually, his literature and photos would be found. So he ends up hiding his belongings outside of the house. So if they were found, they wouldn't be traceable back to him. He like thought everything ahead of time. So he had this unusual behavior pattern regarding his kills, especially after describing this dark side. And and he would consider it. it it was considered this insatiable urge, which many of these guys, that's what they talk about. So there were a couple of reasons why Raider was able to wait sometimes years before he would attack again. And we know that by studying people like Bundy and Dahmer, among others, that they wouldn't really be able to control that level of escalation. They, if they felt they needed to kill and if they felt that that need superseded anything, it, it would supersede any rational or logical parts of the brain. So Raider was meticulous. He wasn't as impulsive until he was engaged in the act. So he was very good at taking his time. It was when he was in the act where he would lose his shit. Right. 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 Then it'd be like, okay, I'm in there and I'm going to fuck up. Right. Because that's what would happen. So he was very deliberate. He needed time to organize his thoughts, uh, his stages, including stalking and finding his perfect target. But he also knew if he started that process, it would be a train he couldn't get off. So he would not commit to the follow, like to actually physically doing it until he knew he could get away with it. So I'm going to read a little, uh, another little portion here from the book from page 78 said, I thought I could control it. I soon realized I was in over my head and I was too embarrassed to ask for help. I quickly was into sexual fantasies beyond my control. I had set my goals to be a white hat high, but the life the lifeboat drifted away from my reach until the deep water became my coping. I trusted myself to steer the right course, but when I studied books about past serial killers, the more I learned, the closer I came to believe I could someday become one. I was on a powerful train that I could not get off. The track was set. Superman could stop stop it, but I was not Superman. To cope with what I was doing, I cubed like I would do as a kid. A normal person would go crazy from such evil intent, but serial killers are not normal. We have our own world we live in. Just like a monster in his own castle, we may go out in the world and be friendly and nice, but we're still held captive in the castle. 
very hard for anyone to jump the moat and bring down the walls. In Ramsland's book, Rader shares how during the attempted murder, murder of Catherine Bright, he would co- eventually call Project Lights Out, he loses composure, which allowed Catherine's brother to escape. This was a very close call for him. And this is where one of the cases I think that he de- he decided, if I can't be present, if I can't do this right, I can't half-ass it. So he says, so the brother's name is Kevin. He says, after Kevin, I sort of lost control and composure. KB, who's Catherine Bright, was tied to the chair in the bedroom and she was beginning to get hysterical. Her gag had slipped out and I didn't realize she was also less restrained in the chair. As I returned to her, she asked what's going on. I told her I had shot her brother, but he would be okay. Then we began to fight. I tried to strangle her, but that didn't work. Losing control with the problematic Kevin, I recalled what I had read somewhere about how to stab a person. It's not what I wanted to do, but I had lost control and needed to end this. If I had known Kevin was still alive, perhaps I would have just left or maybe shot her, but I quickly unholstered my hunting knife, a buck knife with an eight-inch blade, and began stabbing her. I had had no intention of stabbing anyone, but it happened because I lost that control. That created a mess of blood everywhere on my hands, pants, shoes. I made a vow. If I ever again had to confront to kill, there would be no knife. I would only draw it if I needed to defend myself. I thought I had just stabbed two or three times underneath the ribs. I had read in the detective magazine that if you wanted them to go down, you stab under the ribs and hit the lungs or the heart. It was a total mess because I didn't have control over it and she was bleeding bad. Then I heard Kevin escapes. So this case really freaked him out. Um, so according to Catherine Ramsland, she explains how Raider's life circumstances, um, having a family job and the demands of both made it difficult for him to carry out his crimes, especially with the time he devoted to each crime. Ramsland, who worked very closely while writing this book, also inferred that Raider was actually never dormant. He was stalking victims and he was studying his next moves, but circumstances did not allow him to carry them out. So he was very much still getting that supply, which is a big reason why he was able to withhold the actual kill because he got such a thrill from the preparation. Yeah, we talked last time about a lot of the events that were happening that were like, quote unquote, protective factors against him, against him uh, acting out. And then the other thing I was thinking when you were talking about, of course, there's always this component with addiction where the anticipation of it is a lot more fulfilling than actually using, Mm -hmm. especially rituals. yeah, Yeah. Especially after you've used for a little while, the anticipation is more of the dopamine rush in your system than actually using. And so I, of course, and I believe I mentioned this before as well is that's happening, but I was thinking one of the many reasons, many, many reasons I'm sure why he probably didn't like the kill except for the release, you know, that, that between starting the, the kill or the stalking or the day that it's going to happen. And when he gets the release of the kill that chunk of time, I'm imagining that he didn't like that because that's when he's the least in control. 100%. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense me. to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she uh, said that Raider had shared over 55 working projects that he was unable to carry out because he always had a cover story. So he, he just like you were saying, he found much of his pleasure in stalking, binding, and torturing more than actually carrying out the kill. 
So this means that even what appeared to be latency periods, he was still stalking. He was still... Right. He was still using. He basically. was still using. That's it's right. just we wouldn't have known because uh -huh. he wasn't executing murder. That's right. In an article by the name of Why Did Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer, Wait So Long Between His Murders? This was written by Jill Setterstrom in 2018. Scott Vaughn, a PhD in criminology who corresponded with Rader and wrote the book Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murders, stated that Rader was still getting supplies simply through the work he did, which again, like Shannon's talking about, this is him still using the drug. He was able to get the same sense of power and control through his jobs. First at his job at a security company installing alarm systems and later as a compliance officer in Park City, Kansas. Bond said Rader told him he loved carrying a badge as compliance officer and had a reputation for strictly enforcing the rules. He was getting the fix that he needed to scratch his itch for power and control, he said. I think that's one of the things that allowed him to de-escalate and have long periods between his killings because it gave him an outlet. Bon also discussed how Raider would also get satisfaction from active autoerotic fantasies where he would relive his killings. If any of you out there have watched um, the second season of Mindhunter, it starts with that. He's doing just that. So he would use items that he had stolen from his victims in conjunction with naked photos of women to act out his fantasies. So he had his own little dungeon that he'd carry out these fantasies. And at one point he shared with Bond that the public should be grateful for his fantasies or he would have killed more people. Okay. So he solidified that no un at no uncertain times would he have been able to control his impulses. He was just smart enough to find outlets and that was mostly through because of self-preservation, because he couldn't get caught. Yeah, and yeah. I also, I'm getting this sense or this flavor, and I haven't read about him, but that, you know, one of the things in sadomasochism, even in healthy sadomasochism, is withholding. Yes, oh my gosh, so for I have sure. A, so I have a feeling the withholding, the actually controlling himself, he was also getting a little bit of supply or a little bit of a hit from not only controlling others, but controlling himself made him feel powerful. I'm not executing these crimes. You're welcome. And he gets, you know, he gets some ego from that. Yeah, I totally agree. He, and this is what I think makes him a little bit different because he wasn't just a sadist. He was the, there was the masochism as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So a little bit left here, this, this last part I found really interesting. So, you know, we know as, as being in the field of mental health that experts believe that both biology and environmental factors create a so-called killer and that the emotional reactions of Raider's early experiences uh, created the chemical properties in his brain that would eventually translate into behavior. So driven by this need to achieve this type of arousal, that is the goal of what we would deem a lust killer, the greater the intensity of the pleasure when it's committed, the likelihood they're going to recidivate and repeat this pattern until it becomes an emotional memory. So everything in their, their life, everything else in their life really pales in comparison and feels very mundane, just like a drug addict, like we we're saying. So he refers, Ramsland, excuse me, she refers to this as the erotic enthrallment. And we know that erotic enthrallment is driven by dopamine, and over time, 
like, like we know with addicts, dopamine release will be flattened and the individual need more and more of that drug or more of a, uh, a different version of that drug for the stimulation to even occur, right? To feel that level of euphoria, like we, we they may say in addiction, you know, chasing that proverbial dragon. Rams, and this is the last part we'll cover for today, Ramslin goes on to discuss the work of Dr. Al Carlisle, who had done psychological testing on Ted Bundy assessing how someone good how someone good can move in and out from the good and the bad and so he would label this as compartments carlisle proposes that someone can remain in a functioning human as a functioning human and engage in killings through three primary processes the first is fantasy imagining scenarios for entertainment purposes or self comfort the second dissociation the person enters the fantasy to avoid the reality of uncomfortable feelings, including boredom, because we know that they cannot be bored. And three, compartmentalization. So different ideas and images are assigned to mental frames, keeping them separate. Dark feelings go into this secret compartment, and the feelings are developed over time as the fantasies grow. These fantasies might form from rage and revenge as they develop this new persona to feel empowered and at times develop a separate identity. And we know with Raider that he did have a lot of revenge fantasies being rejected. At first, like we saw when he was young, he had more access to his guilt when he was younger. In the earlier episodes, I talk about how he actually really tried to stop it. Um, he had more access to guilt. He had more access to shame and remorse. But as time goes on, the triangulated reality works as a buffer to keep those feelings out and the less cognitive dissonance there is over right or wrong. Yeah, defenses get stronger and stronger and yep. shadows get pushed and pushed down under everything. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, defend the defense against anyone seeing the softer piece, the vulnerable piece, the piece that he's not in control of, the piece that he doesn't have power over, the piece that is the... Uh, exact opposite of power and control you know the the masochist maybe for lack of a better word that's inside was buried and yeah yeah and we got what we got we got what we got he's an interesting dude yeah he really is you know from afar right like i don't <laughs> i don't know if i would ever care to get to know this dude but i i'm i really appreciate the forensic experts that have gone in and done these interviews with him. Absolutely. It's, it's good information for us in the industry, but also the general public to have and to understand about people that are capable of these things. Sure. Thank you so much for that, Kathy. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. You guys, this has been an episode of terror talk. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe, everyone.